is a conversation with Tor Wager. Hi, Tor. Hello. Uh, so, the focus of your career has been to study the placebo effect. Right. Uh, I've been interested for a long time in what we can do with our minds to promote healing and well-being. And it relates to the idea that health is not just the absence of disease, but it's an active process that's constructed in large part by our brains, by what's happening within us uh, and around us all the time. And so I think I, I see mental health and a lot of neurological health as being about what's happening endogenously or inside your brain and how your brain and you adapt to your present circumstances. And so I think it's been really I think, fruitful and interesting for me because a number of the, yeah, it's been fruitful and interesting for me because I've been finding that a number of the processes that are likely involved in showing a therapeutic drug response are really processes that are about how a person responds to the context or to the situation. So they are they are essentially self-healing processes. So so um, what we're talking about is what makes all of this possible is actually uh, we're not talking about something that is purely unfiltered stimulus response. Uh, something happens, creates pain, but it's a filtered, it's a constructed process. And we're not just talking about pain, but we're talking about health in general where the constructed process means there is uh, uh, some filtering from the brain. And this is what makes all of this possible. Right. Um, if we think about what the mechanisms underlying placebo effects are, there are many. Uh, there are relatively simple stimulus response association processes or stimulus-stimulus association processes, so things are triggered unconsciously. Um, there, a placebo or a therapeutic context can also trigger changes in emotional state, which are based on how you appraise the situation. Uh, and there's also role, various roles for cognitive contributions uh, for things like expectations, um, which are really thoughts about the future, about the future implications and consequences. Um, there are also other kinds of cognitive effects that relate to how we draw on our past experience, how we remember, given the, the treatment context, um, and uh, how we think about the social world, how we feel connected to other people. So I think all of these, there are many mechanisms underlying placebo effects, uh, and they range from very, these very low-level ones to very conscious, cognitive, elaborate ones. And part of our job as researchers is to understand how to unpack those mechanisms and understand what their relative contributions are. Um, so uh, you but, go, sorry, to go, go back to the second part of your comment, yeah, on, on construction, <laughs> right? Um, so in my view... A lot of what creates mental health and, and some of physical health, not all of it, is constructed. So I see emotion as a constructed phenomenon that emerges from the interaction of many brain systems working together. Uh, and 
your emotional response and life and health uh, in turn contributes in certain ways to physical health. So I think there's nothing magical here. It's not as though um, it's not as though you could always think yourself better into physical health in all circumstances, but that there are some defined pathways by which emotional responses happening in your brain can influence your body and can influence your state of well-being uh, in ways that can really have a big impact on your long-term health. Yeah, so as you talk about it this way, then in a way it's changing perspective on the way in everyday language we talk about placebo because uh, in everyday language, when we talk about placebo, we focus on the, uh, this is a harmless pill, this is a sham, this is bullshit, you know. And in fact, what you're talking about is that what makes it possible is actually a very complex view of what is healing or what is health uh, that takes into consideration this constructed, this interaction of uh, many processes, including brain processes. That's right, and the word placebo has always been a tricky word because it's used to identify something that by definition has no direct pharmacological or physiological action, but rather works by the context, by changing what a person thinks about the treatment Mm -hmm. (laughs) itself. And so for many people in medicine, a placebo effect by definition is, is a null effect. It doesn't work. Uh, and this has been additionally sort of confused because um, when a person in a clinical trial takes a placebo and gets better, that's a placebo response, but it's not clear that there was any active mechanism there. It's not clear that it was caused by something happening in the person's brain for various reasons. They might have gotten better anyway. They Their symptoms might be fluctuating up and down, and they enroll in the trial when symptoms are at a high point. Um, there are other st- kinds of statistical artifacts as well that all go into uh, a placebo response. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so that doesn't prove that the placebo is actually having an active effect. However, a number of experimental studies done really over the last um, <coughs> 60 or 70 years now, starting in the 50s with uh, Beecher, really demonstrate that placebo, taking a placebo can have... Uh, active effects on how you interpret the treatment, how you, what you think and believe about the treatment, and then downstream effects on how much pain you feel, uh, how much distress you feel, their effects on depression, their effects on Parkinson's disease, and movement and reward learning, or motivational processes in Parkinson's disease, and probably other types of outcomes as well. So in that sense, that's a placebo with a real effect, but the effect is mediated through the brain itself. Mm-hmm. And another part of this that you alluded to earlier is what happens when a person takes, uh, go, you know, goes to a, a doctor or a hospital and, and takes an active drug, takes a painkiller. Well, um, they get the drug, but they also know that they're getting the drug. And so they get the social context of the caring physician. They get the hospital or doctor's environment. So they get physical cues that have been associated with uh, healing and treatment and therapeutic responses in the past. Uh, They might hopefully have an enhanced sense of trust and belief that they're going to get better. Uh, Their emotional state might 
well improved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and they have uh, perhaps more specific lower-level associations between uh, the act of taking the treatment, being treated, and even the, the, the physical characteristics of the treatment itself and, um, and, and uh, therapeutic responses in the past. So depending on the situation, all of those things can be the active ingredients of the placebo. So now go back to the situation where a person is taking uh, a, a painkiller, a standard painkiller. They have all of these potential mechanisms at play and not just the, the pharmacological actions of the drug. So in several studies, um, what has been shown is that in some cases, about half of that drug effect, or in one case at least, all of the drug effect is actually due to that context, is due to the the, the social and, and contextual mechanisms rather than to the pharmacological actions of the drug. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and uh, what you're you're so it's half is due to the 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 drug itself, if you want, and half is due to that social emotional context. But uh, what you your studies show is that. It's not just uh, that people report it, but they actually experience it that way as far as can be traced by observing what happens in their brain. Right, yeah, we started doing brain imaging studies, uh, fMRI and less frequently PET studies, or positron emission tomography studies, uh, well, about about almost 15 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Really, the point of this was that many studies have demonstrated that placebos can change what people report about their pain. They can cause reported pain relief. And that's actually our best guess about what people are really feeling, right? There's no better way to tell what somebody's feeling than to ask them. But we also know that people's self-reports of pain are very complex. They're, they're judgments that are based in a very complicated uh, social and cultural context. So we know we can influence people's reports in ways that are sometimes relatively trivial. You know, if you uh, take a rating scale and you change the anchor points on the scale, it will change people's ratings sometimes dramatically. <laughs> uh, if you give them different reference frames, they'll change dramatically. So we don't think all these things are really meaningful uh, in the same in the same way um, as as an active pharmacological effect produces a meaningful change. So that's why we started doing these brain imaging studies some years ago. And what we've been able to find over a series of studies is that the regions, in in terms of pain, the regions that are most commonly associated with uh, the processing of that pain in the cerebrum are show reduced activity when one's taking a placebo relative to a matched control condition. So in these studies, each person serves as their own control. They they get a placebo treatment in one case, and they get a control treatment, which is often an identical cream or sometimes a nasal spray or sometimes an injection. Um, um, and then they're tested under the placebo conditions and under control conditions. Uh, and we usually do this by applying a, a thermal stimulus to the arm, so it's a hot probe. It, get, it heats up to a specific temperature, so it's painful but not damaging to the skin. Uh, and it's like holding a hot cup of coffee, <laughs> essentially. Uh, and so when we do this test, we give the same temperature on the skin with the placebo treatment and without, and what we can see is a drop in the pain people report with the placebo 
and the drop in activity in the brain areas that are most closely associated with pain processing and increases in some areas of the brain that are associated with uh, the use of context and the use of cognition to change goals and physiological outcomes. Um, also to ascribe meaning to events and value and to create and resolve stress. <laughs> so yeah. a number of these, these circuits that are, that are probably involved in the mechanisms of, of creating that pain relief. Um, and, and one other important finding, I think, for me that we've been able to show is we know a lot about pain control systems in the brain, uh, although we have much more to learn. And one of the main systems is the endogenous opioid system. So your brain releases opioids uh, in different behavioral circumstances where it's adaptive. It's, a, it's a evolutionarily adaptive to block pain. And, um, and opioids are involved in many of those forms of pain relief. So what happens when we give people pain with a placebo treatment, placebo cream, is we see increases in the release of endogenous opioids in much of the circuitry that's thought to be associated with pain control. So that those are some of the ways in which, um, <coughs> some of the main arguments in which we really think that placebo effects can change how your brain responds to pain in a relatively fundamental way in certain circumstances. So I wanted to take back, you know, what you said. And so two points. One is that uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, reality is measured by activity in the brain uh, in the centers where pain naturally occurs, there's something that can be observed in the brain in terms of reduction of the pain. So it's not just a reporting mechanism. And the other thing you were mentioning is something about the involvement of the areas or the circuits of the brain involved in context and meaning-making. So, uh, and we're talking here about context and meaning-making at a level that's pre-verbal. We're not talking about reasoning and cognitive therapy or philosophy about it, but that's something that happens very quickly. Uh, in a way that we're not aware of, and these functions uh, influence, you know, the um, the experience of pain. That's right, and um, you know, I can elaborate on that a little bit uh, by saying that these meaning-making systems. I think we have evidence now that they can function unconsciously. Um, that's possible, but they also are influenced by one's reasoning processes and one's explicit conscious expectations. So um, if I can give you a sort of thumbnail sketch of this, this system, uh, our working hypotheses now are that, well, it's not one system, but several, but, and that these systems uh, that connect the prefrontal cortex to the brainstem and the body are ones that are designed to provide control over lower-level physiological responses, including pain and your heart rate and your blood pressure and other kinds of um, innate motivational responses, like uh, perhaps thirst and insulin release in your body and release of hormones, uh, by the control over these processes, by the higher level context by the overall appraisal of the situation that you're in. And so 
a thumbnail sketch would be um, that we we maintain our conscious expectations and goals in the lateral and anterior parts of the prefrontal cortex. Uh, they're the most closely associated with those. And, and this really provides a kind of context that we need to understand where we are and what's happening to us and to generate emotional appraisals. So we go from the lateral prefrontal cortex to the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, which is an area that, uh, that is capable of and projects directly to the centers that control um, various aspects of physiological responses in the body. Uh, so it's, it connects to areas that control cortisol release in the hypothalamus and autonomic responses in the brainstem and pain control systems in the brainstem. Uh, and it responds both to cues that influence value and, and essentially um, a context in a way that's unconscious, and it also responds to uh, information that is very much conscious that has to do with your goals and and what you what you explicitly value, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if that makes. Sense. So so we see that, you know this whole process is in the prefrontal cortex as being a mix of unconscious striving and unconscious processes and conscious goals and expectations coming together to and to form really a picture of of the self in context who you are in context. And that picture of the self in context in turn influences the brainstem and influences pain and influences other types of emotional and physiological responses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and, and also, yeah. So, go ahead, go ahead. And that's, <coughs> in my view, that that process of constructing a situation and then using that to guide pain and other kinds of responses is something that's partly under voluntary control, but not completely, because it's influenced by both conscious and unconscious processes. Yeah, okay, so that was the question I wanted to ask. Is This is not something that is uh, uh, thought out. You know, there, might, there are some conscious processes, but uh, it's a mixture uh, of conscious and unconscious processes. And uh, the net of it, in a way, maybe to try and simplify this, is it's some kind of a, a context, not not just a context putting, uh, but essentially a context of orienting. This is who I am and where I am. This is the situation. Uh, and so essentially within that context, uh, the information maybe of the placebo is to say you're not alone with it. Uh, there is society as we know it, science for people who believe in science, medicine, the nice person who is the doctor, whoever, uh, who is behind you. So essentially some kind of a message of you're not alone fighting with it. Is that kind of uh, uh, a simplistic way to, to, to describe what you, what you said? I think so. I think that that's, um, that kind of social and interpersonal context can be a big part of the, and can tap into the mechanisms that also create placebo effects. So, for example, um, we find that this area, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, 
is an area of the brain. It's the third eye, right, you know, in the middle of your forehead. And that area projects very strongly to the hypothalamus that regulates hormones. It projects to the brainstem, which is involved in pain control and other kinds of basic physiological functions. Um, and it's also connected to the prefrontal cortex. And we think that it's involved in essentially the meaning-making process in a variety of situations. Uh, something as simple as deciding what to have for lunch mm-hmm. <laughs> or what you value now. Um, that is essentially a self-in-context task. Or even deciding what you want to have for lunch given your dieting goal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the meaning-making process. And so it turns out that the same area of the brain is involved in very strongly in placebo responses. So it, it's activated consistently when you get a placebo treatment. So so that meaning-making... And, and, Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So that that meaning making oh, okay. function, right? So, so is, yeah, just <clears throat> that meaning making function is um, essentially self in situation, uh, which could be given all I know about myself, you know, and 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 consciously and unconsciously, what am I what am I going to have for lunch? So it's an appraisal of where you are and a decision that's made from that. So in that context, when you're describing the placebo, it's in a way the organism, based on all this information, in a way saying the odds of fighting uh, the disease or the, are in my favor uh, and something happening as a result of that. Yes, I think that's right. I think um, this area of the brain, the, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, is the, is the meaning-making center, in our view, and it has a special relationship with stress, with pain, with control of the body. Uh, and so, you know, to give you a few examples, um, we can change activity in this area when we induce a psychosocial stress. So we can, put, we can ask people to give a speech in front of an audience, and the one area in the brain that changes the most, that goes up the most, is is uh, part of the medial prefrontal cortex. And the more it goes up, the more the brainstem increases in the midbrain, and the more that happens, the more your heart goes up, the <laughs> heart rate increases. So we really think there's this direct pathway there, and it really is about uh, a reflection on how the environmental context bears on, on you, your sense of self. Um, so that's, you know, this relationship with placebo, as I said, that's about the relationship with stress, uh, this, this last example. Um, and, and then in terms of pain, you know, what we find is that normally if you get a painful stimulus applied to your arm, uh, this area decreases with pain. But, um, and, and so, so it's, you know, the more active it is, essentially, the more the more pain goes off in many circumstances. So the mechanism you describe is uh, has similarity with um, emotional regulation, with affect regulation, with self regulation in general. Yeah, it, it, it does, and, and um, there is there is evidence that this area is quite important for generating and regulating affect. <laughs> for all kinds of appraisals that give rise to emotional experiences. Um, and when you, when a person uh, 
self-regulates and they think pain up or down. They try to imagine it as being horrible and damaging and burning. Then activity in this area goes down. And when they appraise it as as um, better, you know, not so bad, it's going to end soon, it's a, it's a warm blanket on a cold day, it's spread it around the body, all these sort of helpful types of imagery and cognition, uh, then activity in this area goes up. And the more it goes up, the less pain people feel. So in healthy people, this area seems to be heavily involved in pain, regula- in pain regulation. And what's interesting is in people with some kinds of chronic pain disorders that we've seen, including fibromyalgia and chronic low back pain, which are both uh, complex disorders that affect people throughout their, their lives for, for years and are hard to understand medically in some cases, um, that the relationship between pain and activity in this area changes. So now, when normally when this area is activated, the sort of meaning-making center, pain goes down. And in those patients, activation seems to be associated with increasing pain. So one interpretation of that, maybe a simple one, is that they're using these mechanisms in the brain for constructing the sense of self in context, for meaning-making, uh, to in, in the service of enhancing those pain signals. Hmm. So it really is potentially something that's happening in their brain that is um, that is exacerbating the, ba- the the pain. And you know, given the same level of input from the body, it might well feel much worse because their brain is saying, "This is significant. This is bad." This means bad things in my future. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So is this something that could be related to the mechanism by which, you know, when something is traumatic, you know, the PTSD type thing, uh, in a way we learn, you know, like I've been burned and the negative experience is stored and has some kind of a priority and we go back to it um, and in a way uh, go to the intensity of the past experience as opposed to the present experience. Yeah, you know, one thing that we've found uh, in looking at studies of PTSD in the brain is that <clears throat> this area, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, again, uh, is consistently reduced in activity in people with PTSD. So it's often associated with the, the regulation or the contextualization of, of events. And in many ways, one of the ideas about PTSD is that there's a failure to contextualize. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I think of the, the classic case of the, the bomb by the side of the road, which is only one of the features of PTSD, right? That, you know, then after you're exposed to the bomb by the side of the road and things blow up, then after that, any kind of movement on the side of the road can trigger this immediate threat response, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a hyper-arousal. And um, one of the main ideas underlying some kinds of PTSD symptoms anyway, is um, that there's a there's a, a failure then to contextualize, to say that was then and this is now. Now I'm driving and I'm safe. I'm back home in Colorado and there are no bombs or snipers. Mm-hmm. But the brain still is on alert, right? It doesn't 
It doesn't have that context. Yeah, yeah. So, so the context and the ability to realize this was then and this is now and this is safe now. So I'm just wondering, uh, connecting to that, you know, third eye activity that, that allows to do that, the extent to which, you know, this, you know, hypothesis, this ability to, that makes us susceptible to the good effects of the placebo effect might be related to, you know, how we form attachment. Uh, and the same way as, say, attachments might, you know, have developed our capacity for self-regulation. Uh, is this connected? Does this, uh, you know, from your experience and your studies, is there something that might make sense in that area? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, w you know, our, our working hypothesis now in some of our new studies is that um, how we perceive the social world, so if you... Um, if you have the support from an attachment figure in one of our recent studies, uh, people report less pain, and they show changes in the brain that correspond with that reduction in pain. So having a, a, a partner hold your hand or provide support can be really beneficial. And this is also true clinically, you know, in childbirth, for example. It's been demonstrated in a number of studies. Uh, so we think that the mechanisms that underlie that uh, that kind of interpersonal attachment um, likely works through the same types of pathways. So, essentially, they work by changing the appraisals of of safety, uh, and those appraisals of safety might, in some cases, even let your body and your brain go into a different mode of processing. Instead of being in threat mode, to put it simply, we're in re recover, rest and recover mode, or we're in explore and play mode. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that shift, right, so the, the shift in the context and the, and the interpersonal environment, you know, uh, and, and one's social attachments um, are an important part of that interpersonal context that then is a main ingredient for putting our own brain into a different state of being where mm -hmm. we respond to many things differently including pain, including thoughts about the future and whether things are going to get better or worse, uh, yeah. and, and other types of, of emotional responses as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just to, to summarize, <laughs> to see if I, you know, hear you correctly, then the, um, you know, the interpersonal relationship, uh, this interaction, uh, creates is a, is a resourcing that allows the brain to go into a different mode uh, and a mode from which it can uh, have the resources uh, to integrate the difficult experience by putting it into a larger context. Yeah, that's. I think that's a that's a, a good way of saying it, right? Yeah. The language is a little bit different than what I'd use, but I'm understanding this. You know, it, it, integrating an event is essentially uh, perhaps localizing it. In, in a to a time and place, so you know when it's going to end and what it means, and uh, whether it's likely to continue to be a problem or not. And if if that's what you mean, then I think that 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 process is is really critical for uh, limiting our our negative responses to events. Yeah, you know? yeah. Whether so I meant it in a way, maybe to clarify a little bit. Yeah, the way you describe yeah. what I meant by integrate was a little bit that but not totally. Uh, I also meant, in a way, integrate the way you digest food. So you, you have a bite of food, uh, and at some point, after chewing on it and digesting it, it becomes a part of your organism. 
so that uh, you have, in a way, uh, it's it's experience that's not sticking out, and it's part, you you have absorbed it, you have digested it, it's part of you. Uh, so I'm not sure whether it totally, I mean, certainly at least partly covers what you were saying. I'm not sure if it's totally the same. I agree. Yeah, that's right. It doesn't sound like it's totally the same. And, um, but in any case, I, I think this, um, this, this integration process is very interesting because, you know, uh, I, my friend Richard Lane and I have been talking for a number of years. And I think one of his theories about what creates essentially um, conversion disorders and somatoform pain disorders and essentially experiencing what originates as emotional distress as pain in the body is you could say it's in some sense a failure to, to integrate the emotional trauma that one has experienced. And that might play out in, in this sense that um, that... I think what our, our lower brains do, our brain stems, for example, can operate in a way that's relatively independent of what our, our higher conceptual processes are, are, are doing or are, are holding and, and representing. And if that's the case, you know, it might be that that's important for understanding what creates this, let's say, uh, a strong emotional response that you a person doesn't have any real contextual frame for it. They think they shouldn't be feeling it, mm-hmm. uh, or they know it's not appropriate, but it's there, you know, and or, or even something that they don't experience consciously, but it's happening in their brainstem, and it may not have any conscious access at all. Mm-hmm. So there's no way that they can contextualize or, or, or integrate it or digest it into the overall narrative of their life and their sense of self, right? It exists on its own in, right. in your brain, and so... It's very difficult to 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 gain control over it in some mm-hmm. sense, mm-hmm. you know. And you know, one process I know that's part of the therapeutic process in psychotherapy is is trying to find those things which are really not consciously accessible or that we can't elaborate. It's just bad. It's not. We don't know why it's bad, mm-hmm. you know. And and to bring them to bring them into a closer connection with our our sense of. Uh, our sense of the narrative of our lives and what it means. Yeah. Um, and so, so that I think is really, you know, I don't think we're there yet in terms of the neuroscience, mm-hmm. but I suspect that there's some kind of integration between processes that are happening in the brainstem and the amygdala and other parts of the forebrain and these higher cortical representations of, of emotion and meaning. That's quite important. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. there could literally be a kind of Process of cortical subcortical integration that parallels this, uh, you know, becoming aware of, of things that you weren't previously aware of and, and bringing them into consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, so essentially, um, um, a mindfulness process. Yeah, my, mindfulness is an interesting way of putting it. Um, cause for, you know, for, for me, mindfulness is sort of increasingly kind of coming to refer to a specific kinds of, of meditation related yeah. practices. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I, but certainly I think one of the goals of, of many forms of, of such meditative practices is to, to sit and be aware, become aware of, of thoughts and emotions and things that you weren't aware of before. 
Mm-hmm. Right? To essentially give yourself space for those things to emerge, in which case, you know, they perhaps become easier to integrate in, in mm-hmm. language. Thanks, Tor. Um, is this a good place to end, or would you want to add something to... Uh... I, I think so. You know, I, I, I could just add one more thing, yeah. I, which might be useful, which is sort of going back to this idea about the conscious and unconscious interplay. And um, and one thing that we're finding that I, I believe in is that these, you know, how our pain is shaped and even what we expect to happen next, whether we expect something bad or not, is a process that involves our expectations in a very sort of conscious sense. But it also is not completely under our control, and, and it's something that's learned over time. So I really believe that um, as we practice a particular pattern of thinking over time or a particular kind of expectation in response to a specific situation, then those things, those responses become stamped in over time. Hmm. And we've started to attempt to look at those things in very simple, rudimentary ways in the brain, and we can see how this, you know, third eye, ventral medial prefrontal cortex representation of the anticipated value of something is, is updated uh, as, as you gain experience with it. And I think that's important because I think it kind of speaks to this idea that we have a, a limited influence at any one moment in time o- over this process, but as we, as we practice, you know, mentally, as we, as we practice taking the right mental stance and, and having the right appraisals toward things, then we can stamp in those, those appraisals over time. So they essentially get more and more automatic uh, the more we practice them. So, so in other words, the choice between reinforcing the built-in default mode and stereotypes uh, or expanding and uh, learning from experience to uh, be more accurate. Yeah, I think that's a good example, right? In, in every domain, in, in terms of um, in terms of stereotypes, in terms of negative versus positive thoughts about the future, optimism versus pessimism, um, I think all of our patterns become stamped in over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we change, as we you know work to to change our our previously stamped in patterns, if they're maladaptive for us, if they're bad for us, then we can sort of change the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Right, and then and then, but it doesn't happen all at once, right? It doesn't happen in, in one day. Um, but over time, you know, those more productive or positive ways of thinking become more and more stamped in. Great, thanks. So, that's my <laughs> this recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. From experience, to uh, be more accurate. Yeah, I think that's a good example, right? In, in every domain, in, in terms of um, in terms of stereotypes, in terms of negative versus positive thoughts about the future, optimism versus pessimism, um, I think all of our patterns become stamped in over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as we change, as we you know work to to change our our previously stamped in patterns, if they're maladaptive for us, if they're bad for us, then we can sort of change the tipping point. Mm-hmm. Right, and then and then, but it doesn't happen all at once, right? It doesn't happen in, in one day. Um, but over time, you know, those more productive or positive ways of thinking become more and more stamped in. Great. 
Thanks. That's my <laughs> This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.